First reading today is from Psalm 19, beginning at verse 14, uh, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Second reading is from Romans in chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to open up God's word together, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you show us who you are, that you tell us about your world, about who we are in it, about what you've done for it in the Lord Jesus and for each of us. And so, Father, as we continue to dig into your word this morning, we ask that the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know how what a good film does is to open up some aspect of reality of what it is to be a human being really, really clearly and profoundly so that you see it and you go, yes, that's true. That speaks something deep and true and real about uh, who we are, about who I am, about the human condition. Uh, for me, one of those movies, a favourite film of mine, is The Silence of the Lambs, uh, based on Thomas Harris's book of the same name. Uh, some of you will have seen it, some of you won't have seen it. Um, go and see it, if you have, like, you know, go and watch it if you haven't before, but with lots of lights on. It's a scary film. Uh, it's about a cannibal, uh, a serial killer named Hannibal Lecter, uh, who is a brilliant psychologist and psychopath, uh, who helps a trainee FBI agent, uh, Officer Clarice Starling, to catch another serial killer 
and he uses the encounter with Officer Starling to make his own escape. Uh, there's a moment when the young Officer Starling, uh, played by the magnificent Jodie Foster, is interviewing Lecter, played uh, by the brilliant Anthony Hopkins, and she's at a loss as to how to understand him, how to make sense of all that it is that he's done, all that it is that he's become. She says to herself, really, as much as to him, what must have happened to you to twist you like this and make you such a monster? Lecter's reply is deeply insightful. He says, why nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviourism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nobody, nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Do you see what's so insightful about that? Uh, this is just a glaring example of that defence mechanism that we all use from time to time. We say to ourselves that we're not really all that evil deep down inside, that the problem is somewhere out there, that there's a set of influences and circumstances that have turned us into and forced us to do the bad things that we are and that we do. Uh, and here's the point. This serial killer makes this FBI officer wonder, am I like that? Am I just like him? Her defence is to say, no, 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 something bad must have happened to you that explains you and that explains why I'm different from you. And his response, in effect, is to say, look at me and you'll know that if I happened, if I happened just like this, then just maybe you've got this same thing inside you. So far in Romans 7, Paul has been placing us on a map, if you like, highlighting who we are in relation to God and to God's world and locating on that map just where the problem lies. The problem, he says, is not the Jewish law, which is holy and just and good. And it's not the Jewish nation itself, which was called by God to be a light to the world. No, Paul says again and again, the problem is sin. And in this last short section of chapter 7, Paul drills even deeper and leaves us no escape. The problem can't be separated out or put to one side or reflected on from a safe, abstract difference. The problem, Paul tells us here, is personal. The problem is inside you. And so we're going to unpack what Paul has to say about this under three headings that you can maybe see on the screen. It's a bit small, sorry. Uh, firstly, the problem, which Paul names as the weakness of the flesh. Uh, second, the solution, rescue through death. And finally, the consequence of all this to be no longer a slave. Now let's move straight on into that first point, the problem, the weakness of the flesh uh, that Paul speaks about. Uh, Paul has shown so far that the law is holy and just and good. Uh, in verse 14 he summarises, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into slavery under sin. Now, the problem isn't the law, the problem lies somewhere else, and Paul locates it more clearly than he has at any point in his argument so far. The problem is sin, which twists and uses what is good against itself to produce evil, and that sin is in you. What Paul does here is to kind of describe the problem from within, from the perspective of the one who is under sin. What does it look like and feel like when sin has such immense power to turn good against itself? 
Uh, Have a read with me from verse 15. Paul writes, I do not understand my own actions. For I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it's no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. What Paul's doing here is painting a portrait, if you like, a portrait of a particular kind of person who has been utterly defeated by their own moral incapacity. Uh, It isn't a problem of knowledge that they just don't know what the right thing to do is. They just don't know what good is. They know what's good. They can see it. Uh, And it's not just a problem of willpower. It's not that they see the good but don't really want to do the good. They see what's good. They know it's good. They want it. They will it. And yet as hard as they try, they can never manage to do it. It's a portrait of someone who has no capacity, no power whatsoever to do what it is they know they should do. And now, as we've said, the kind of main topic of this whole chapter is uh, Paul talking about the Jewish law and trying to see how that fits into all of God's purposes. Uh, he's been doing that all through the chapter, and uh, he does the same here. He reaches his conclusion about the Jewish law, the Torah, in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. Uh, the original Greek text of this verse is actually a little bit clearer, I think, than what you see in your translation there, uh, because the, the Greek makes it clear he's not talking about a law, but about the law. What Paul's saying is, after all this investigation, here's what I've discovered about the Torah, the law given to Israel, the holy, just, and good law given by God. What I've discovered about that law is that even when I want to do it, evil results. And so he continues to draw out the depth of the problem in the next few verses. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. And that was a standard Jewish thing, right? To take delight in the law that God had revealed to them. We saw that in the psalm we had read for us this morning as well. I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law, at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, even delighting in God's law can't overcome sin. The law itself is twisted by sin, becoming a law of sin, a law under sin's power. Now, the observation that Paul's making here, that to know what's good and to want to do it aren't enough to actually do it, uh, is not actually unique to Paul, right? He's not the first person who made an observation like this. Plenty of pagan philosophers have made the same point even before Paul's time. Uh, In fact, the Roman poet Ovid, uh, who uh, was around just a little bit before Paul's time, Uh, wrote this line. He wrote, I see and approve the better course, but I follow the worse. It seems that what Paul's suggesting here in part, as he echoes some of the concepts of Greek and Roman philosophy around this same question, uh, is suggesting that uh, even having a law from God himself, a holy and just and good set of commandments, Israel are in precisely the same position as the pagan Gentiles. They're enslaved to sin. So the question, of course, is, How can that be? How can it be that God's special people, chosen to be a light to the world, given his good, holy, just, perfect law, can end up in exactly the same moral predicament as the rest of the nations around them? Well, it's at this point that Paul's analysis of sin reaches its deepest, its darkest, its sharpest, its most confronting point. The reason we have no power against sin is because it's in you. 
Now, I don't know if you noticed that as uh, the passages read for us earlier. Uh, verse 17 speaks of the sin that dwells within me. Verse 20 speaks again about the sin that dwells within me. Verse 23 speaks of the law of sin that dwells in my members. The problem Paul's saying is that the, the sin that you, know, that you struggle against, it's, it's in you. It isn't outside somewhere. It can't be located somewhere else in circumstances or in other influences that aren't part of you as a person. The power of sin works its way out in your life from your heart outwards. Now, Paul refers to this condition as the flesh. Now, flesh is his way of talking about the whole person under the power of sin. Now, not saying that bodies are bad. In fact, he's going to go on to talk later on in Romans about giving your body to God as a living sacrifice. Flesh is his particular way of speaking about what it looks like when sin gets its hooks into someone, when it sinks its teeth into someone, when it makes its home in someone, such that sin is the power that directs and controls. And it's worth saying here, of course, uh, that Paul isn't saying that having this sin in you then means that all of a sudden you're not responsible for your own actions. You are, sorry, just make that clear, you are responsible for your own actions. Yep, good, excellent. Uh, Paul's already made this very clear. He said way back in chapter 3, uh, everyone, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it's written. There's no one who is righteous, not even one. Uh, by speaking here of sin dwelling in human hearts, Paul doesn't mean that human beings aren't morally culpable for what they do. His point is that his failure to put into action what he wills to do shows that he's not the only actor on the stage. There's something else going on here, another force also beside himself and beside the law that's involved in this situation. And he names that power, that force, as sin and the person under its power as someone who lives in the flesh. That power, that force, sin, Paul says, gets right down into your heart. And once it's there, you've got no chance. You can't dig it out by yourself. Sin takes over. It's a little bit like this little guy. I'm not going to try and pronounce this little guy's uh, uh, scientific name for you. That will not be pretty. This is a wasp from Costa Rica. Lives in the jungles. This wasp is a parasite. It preys on a particular species of orb-weaving spider. Here's how its life cycle goes. We weren't expecting some entomology this morning, were you? But here you go. We're going to talk a bit about bugs. Uh, this particular wasp preys on a particular species of orb-weaving spider, and what, the, what happens is the female wasp stings the spider and paralyzes it and lays an egg on the spider's abdomen. Uh, when the egg hatches, the wasp larvae stays attached to the spider and feeds by sucking fluids out of the spider's abdomen. Uh, perhaps surprisingly, the spider doesn't really mind all that much at this point. But eventually, the wasp larvae wants to become a fully grown wasp. Everyone wants to grow up and move out of home at some point. And to do that, it needs to build a cocoon. Uh, a spider's web isn't a bad place to build a cocoon. It's up off the ground. It's sticky enough to keep predators at bay. But this spider's web is also too flimsy to support the weight of a cocoon. So to get around this problem, the wasp larvae injects the spider with a cocktail of chemicals that alters the spider's behavior. Instead of completing all the steps needed to make its web as usual, the spider repeats just a few steps over and over and over again until it's built the perfect webby home for the wasp's cocoon. The wasp mind controls the spider, right? takes over the spider and turns it to its own ends. The spider builds this perfect webby home for the wasp's cocoon and then stops and crawls into the middle of the web and just kind of sits there. 
Uh, by way of saying thanks for his service, the wasp builds its cocoon, molts, emerges fully grown, kills the spider, and eats what's left. Pretty gruesome, right? That's what sin's like, Paul is saying here. It's a parasite. It burrows into the heart, and once it's there, it feeds on you. And it twists even what's good to its own evil purposes. It twists your heart out of shape so that you no longer do even what you want to do. You no longer want to do even the good that you know to do. Now, of course, the analogy breaks down pretty quickly, as we've already noted. Sinful humanity is still capable, uh, sorry, culpable in a way that the poor spider is not. But do you see the point that's being made here? Once sin gets its hooks into you, once it sinks its teeth into your flesh, once it's taken up residence in your heart, in the very centre of your being, then you're done for. And in the end, inevitably, always and without fail, sin kills. The wages of sin, Paul writes just in the last chapter, the wages of sin is death. When you see this problem as it really is, at real depth, as something within you, in your own heart, that will eat you up from within until you fall apart in death, then there's only one response you can make, and it's exactly where Paul goes next in a cry of utter and abject desperation. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The problem is in me, he says. I have a wound in my heart, and it's spreading gangrene throughout my body and my life. It's killing me, and I can't get rid of it. I'm powerless against it. And so he says, the only viable solution, as impossible as it may seem, is for someone else to step in, to rescue me out of my inescapable predicament. And that's exactly the solution that Paul begins to suggest. Uh, Paul can't help himself. He's really getting ahead of the argument here. There's going to be lots more to say about the rescue that God makes for us in chapter 8. But Paul can't help himself. He starts to talk about it here. Uh, he begins to tell us what that solution is to this problem of sin dwelling in you. But before we hear Paul's answer, I want us to take a moment just to see what some alternative solutions might actually be. Uh, there's this cool organisation, some of you might know of it, uh, called the School of Life. Uh, it's uh, founded by a renowned philosopher, Alain de Botton. Uh, and their project is really great, actually, is to teach uh, what they call emotional intelligence uh, so that we can uh, be more uh, self-possessed, more self-aware, lead more fulfilling lives as we interact better with those around us. There's lots to love about their work. Uh, um, YouTube's full of great videos from them and great little articles about all manner of things. Uh, this week I came across an article on their website called How to Become a Better Person. Sounds good, right? We all want that. Uh, let me read you a little extract. Uh, just as we have physical muscles, so we have ethical ones. And they too must be put through their paces. Goodness has to be worked at. Uh, in the ethical gym, we might regularly be put through our paces. We have to imagine life through another's eyes, to practice giving way in arguments, to emulate the diplomacy and tact of paragons of patience, and learn to deflect despair through calculated doses of hope. Uh, Aristotle thought that being good meant practicing 12 key virtues. Classical Christianity argued for seven key virtues. Uh, here's the conclusion, right? There's no scientific answer, but the key to goodness seems to be to have some kind of list with which to guide our efforts at being good. The key seems to be to have some kind of list with which to guide our efforts at being good. Uh, here's their list. Now, you won't be able to read all of it. 
there you go. Um, here's their list. I'll read them out for you as well. Resilience, empathy, patience, sacrifice, politeness, humor, self-awareness, forgiveness, hope, confidence. That's a pretty good list of virtues, right? How much better would our civil discourse be, our relationships be, if we were actually just all a little bit better at even two of those ten things, right? These are all great things. But did you notice what they suggest the mechanism of change is here? The way you're supposed to become a better person, to be more like this? is through precisely the same two things that Paul's already shown us, along with the pagan poets and philosophers, can't possibly fix the problem. It's through knowledge and willpower. Know what's good. Have a list of good things to guide you and then do it. Knowledge and willpower are really key concepts in our culture in all kinds of ways. Our solution to so many social ills is education. Don't get me wrong, education a great thing. Well done to all the teachers in the room who are back in their classrooms uh, getting into, into term at the moment. Uh, education's a great thing, right? And our idea often in our culture is that if people just understand more, they'll automatically behave differently. Our response to so many problems in our world is to raise awareness and change behaviour we expect to follow quickly and simply in knowledge's trail. Don't get me wrong, these are all really, really good things and encouraging people to take responsibility and act according to right knowledge is a really important thing. It's just that knowledge and willpower aren't enough. They can't beat sin and you feel it when someone says to you, here's a person to be, just go and do it. And you go, how? I don't know, I can't just make myself be something that I'm not in that way. Knowledge and willpower aren't enough, they can't beat sin. What we need is nothing less than rescuing. And Paul says, in the gospel, a rescue is exactly what we have. Having cried out in hopeless despair, Paul answers his own question by crying out with uncontained joy, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here in chapter 7, Paul just begins to hint at the nature of this rescue. It comes from God and it's through Jesus. He's getting ahead of himself here. I have a great deal more to say about the nature of how God rescues humanity from the power of sin through Jesus in chapter 8, which we'll begin to get into next week. His primary focus in this chapter is to help us really understand exactly where the problem of sin lies, to see it in all its dark, confronting reality. But he does give us a hint about the solution, about that rescue even here, and it's right there in verse 24 when he first speaks about the rescue that he needs. You see, if you read there, what he longs to be rescued from is the body of death. You see, the parasite always consumes its host. Sin always kills. It kills the whole person, body and soul. And the way that God rescues human beings like you and me from that inevitable demise is by sending Jesus to be consumed in our place. Jesus deals with sin precisely by taking it upon himself. The only parasite-free human who ever lived, like us in every way except without sin, he received the wages of sin in our place. He let sin get its hooks in him, put its teeth in his flesh, and drain him of life. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And his sinless body became a body of death so that our sin-infected bodies of death might become alive again. You see, what happens when you entrust yourself to Jesus, when you cry out to him saying, rescue me, is that sin is displaced from your heart. 
that it no longer has the controlling influence in your life. And in its place, Paul says earlier in chapter 5, in the place of sin, the love of God is poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to deal with this problem. That's the only solution that's going to work. Not something out there, but someone out there who can do something about what's in here. You need your heart to be changed. You need your soul to be renewed from within. You need sin to be displaced, for the parasite to be removed, for God to make his dwelling where sin once was, in the very centre of your being. And that's the rescue that's held out to us in the Lord Jesus. That's what's happened to you if you've trusted in Jesus. The problem? The weakness of flesh, sin in you. The solution? Jesus' own body of death so that you might be made alive. And there's a consequence to all of this. When all of that happens, there's a necessary and wonderful thing that flows out from it, which is quite simply that you are freed from the power of sin. What happens when Jesus rescues you in this way is that it's possible for you to do the good that God calls you to in a way that was not possible at all before. Have a look at how Paul bookends this little section in verses 14 and 25, the beginning and the end of the section from Romans we're looking at. There he speaks about being sold into slavery under sin and at the end about being a slave to the law of sin. To have sin in you, he says, is to be a slave to sin and to be rescued means that you are no longer a slave to sin. Paul's made this same point very clearly already back in chapter 6. In chapter 6 we read, Thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become instead slaves of righteousness. You see, if you've been rescued by God through Jesus, you are no longer a slave. Sin doesn't call the shots anymore. It's worth just dwelling on that for a moment um, and saying, Uh, Something kind of important about this little passage of Romans. Um, I'm going to do something I don't often do in a sermon because I think it doesn't matter to most people in lots of ways and it's not the most important thing about preaching, right? I want you, as we open God's word together, to get the gospel more in your heart. You don't need all that much technical information, right? But here we go. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's in the background here in this passage. This last little part of Romans 7 um, is, I kind of want to say somewhat controversial. Controversial is not quite the right word. But there's disagreements amongst the scholars about how best to understand this part of God's word. Um, There are kind of three main camps, all centred around the question of, who is the I that Paul is talking about here? When Paul says, I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate, who's the I that he's speaking about? Uh, There are three kind of camps on this, um, and I know which one I think is is right, makes most sense of the text, and that's what I'm going to tell you about now. But it's just worth saying that even though there's disagreement about this, um, it's pretty widespread. I'm not going out on a limb here, just in case you're wondering. I'm not kind of making something up. They're kind of even split amongst the commentators about what they think is going on here in this text. When you read this, I know, because I feel the same way when I read it. When you read this, it's very tempting to imagine that the I here is Paul describing his own experience of wrestling with sin as a Christian, and therefore describing our own Christian experience as well as we wrestle with sin in our lives. And that's one of the things that some commentators think is going on here. The thing is, I don't think that can possibly be what Paul is talking about here. Why? Why can't it be that Paul is talking here about Christians wrestling with sin? Well, it's for a few reasons, but let me give you two. Uh, Paul has already said back in chapter 6 that anyone who's entrusted themselves to Jesus 
has already been freed from slavery to sin. Here in chapter 7, we see someone who is enslaved to sin. Paul says, if you're entrusted yourself to Jesus, you've already been freed from slavery to sin. Secondly, he said just a few verses before, earlier in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, he speaks to his readers and says, you were living in the flesh, but now you live the new life of the Spirit. You're not under sin in the flesh. You now live in the Spirit. So here's what I think is going on. Paul's not describing here the Christian life. He's describing the spiritual reality of someone who doesn't know Jesus, who hasn't experienced this rescue that he cries out for. Uh, In the first hand, he's still discussing here the Jewish law. He's describing the situation that a faithful Jew finds themselves in apart from Jesus. Because even the holy, just and good law of God gets twisted by sin and there's nothing the law itself can do about it. Secondly, he's opening that up to connect that experience to the problem facing the whole of humanity. The problem that Israel have is the problem that we all have. Sin infects every one of us. And apart from God's rescue in Jesus, we're all slaves to its power. Paul's describing someone who is completely helpless against sin, who's totally defeated, who has no recourse other than utter despair and to shout into the void, hoping that someone hears him and comes to his rescue. But brothers and sisters, if you have trusted yourself to Jesus, then that is not your spiritual reality anymore. That is not who you are. Now, I know you might feel like that is you sometimes. I know that you might feel it because I feel it a lot too, right? There's lots of this passage you read and go, gosh, that feels like me most days, right? I know what God would have me do here. I'm finding it really hard to do that thing. It's easy to be weighed down when it feels like our pattern of sinful behavior just won't change. As hard as we pray and work to honor Jesus in all we do, there are all kinds of ways in which we keep falling back into sin. The struggle with sin as a Christian is real. It will continue until the Lord's return. And there are plenty of places in the New Testament that speak about it, including in Paul's own writing, that make that very clear. But what's happening here, I think, is Paul describing a different spiritual reality, one that is not yours anymore if you trust Jesus. You are no longer a slave to sin. Sin can't defeat you even when it drags you down because Jesus dragged sin down in his own death and defeated it once and for all. And you see, it's actually precisely because of that, because Jesus has defeated sin and rescued you from its power, that you can persevere in struggling against it. Even when you do sin, you won't be crushed. You press on, you seek to do what's good. You get up when you've been knocked down. You ask God for forgiveness. You won't give up the fight but you lean into the grace of God again and again and again. Uh, You see, what Paul's doing here is that he's just so full in his heart of the gospel of what happens in Jesus that he kind of spoils the picture a little bit, right? Um, Have a look uh, again at verse 24 and 25. Uh, He says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's in character, if you like, as someone who has not experienced rescue. This is the end point that you get to if you really understand sin, but you don't know the solution. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And Paul, full of the good news of Jesus, can't help himself. He breaks out of character and says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what you see here actually is something really important to keep working at and grasping in your own life. This is the kind of uh, gospel instinct that Paul has. You see, when he has experiences of being weighed down by sin, those kinds of things that feel like what it's talking to us about here in Romans 7, his instinct isn't to go, 
I'm a total abject failure, I'm lost, all is done for, I'm screwed. No, instead he turns around straight away and says, thanks be to God that I'm not defined by this anymore. That this is not who I am anymore. That sin does not have ultimate power over me anymore. I live not under law, but under grace. That's something we all need to continue to lean into, I think. When you feel like it sounds like this person feels here in Romans 7, when you feel the depths of your own sin, to pivot to the gospel. To go, that's not what defines me anymore because I have been made new and rescued in the Lord Jesus. On the other hand, it may be that you're someone who hasn't yet experienced that rescue. And if that's the case, then Romans 7 here is describing where you are, describing your spiritual reality. And it may be that you feel that tension. You want to be a different person. You can't do it in your own power. If that's you, hear God's word to you this morning that Jesus offers rescue, that he will take your sin, that he will renew your heart if you trust yourself to him. You see, this is what's going on here in this passage. When Paul makes his desperate plea, who will rescue me? He can't resist the knee-jerk response that God gives us in the gospel. And the more you let your own heart be shaped by God's grace to you, by his gracious rescue of you through the body of our Lord Jesus, the more impossible it's going to become for you to look at your own sins, your own failings, your own heart, and to despair without immediately following Paul in boldly declaring that God has done what we could never hope to do for ourselves. And so this is going to be your experience the more and more and more you see what Jesus has done for you. You'll say, wretched human being that I am who will save me from this body of death and without missing a beat... You'll say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray and give thanks to God for that right now. Our Father, you are so full of love and grace and kindness and compassion to us. We are so lost in our own sins so much of the time, so powerless, not knowing how to make forward moves, forward momentum. And yet, Father, we know that for all of our own failings, we're not defined by our sin and our failure anymore if we trust in the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that we have been rescued, that the sin that was in us, the parasite that infected us, has been excised through Jesus, and that now instead we're full of your love and your spirit in our hearts. And so, Father, with our brother Paul and with the saints throughout the ages, we say thanks. Thanks be to you, the true and living God who has rescued us through the Lord Jesus. Continue to fill us with your spirit, we pray, that we might be more and more your people, that we might know your love and grace to us deeper and deeper in our hearts, that we might get this gospel dynamic in us, so that we might continue to love and live and serve the Lord Jesus for all of our days as we wait for his return. And we pray this for your glory and in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.